today, what we're going to do, we're not going to continue in the Beatitudes because next week, uh, Brother Frank's going to be here, and then we have Next Gen Sunday coming up. So I'd like to keep some consistency when we finish up with the last part of, of the Beatitudes, which is going to be really encouraging as uh, it tells us that we're going to ensue persecution. So we will enjoy that one thoroughly, amen? But don't laugh because uh, if, if you, during that study, I'll bring out some things what's going around, on around the world. It's horrific what they're doing to Christians, amen? So today it's more of a topical study based on one passage in Scripture. So with that said, let's discuss a question that many of us may ponder throughout our Christian walk. And that is, and it can be said, what is God's will for us? What does he desire of us? Well, I can't give you the particulars for each one of your lives. Guideline, a general plan that, that the Lord brought out to me in this passage of Scripture that gives us five practical guidelines or applications of what the Lord truly desires of us. And we could say it's his general plan of his will for our life. So with that said, if you'd like, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. And we'll start there. Deuteronomy 10, 12 to 13. A couple of big portions of Scripture today, but that's okay. It's God's word. And it reads, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. In this passage of Scripture, the Lord gives Israel, these called out ones, five practical guidelines, if you will, in what he desires of his covenant people. And listen, it's to do that, he wants them to establish that relationship with him through these guidelines and principles as his people. But as we read in the last part of that scripture, it's also for our good. He gives his principles and decrees and these things to us, these guidelines, because he loves his covenant people and therefore our good. So it's to help develop that relationship, but it's also for the good of his people. And though the Lord is speaking to the Israelites, Remember, church, we are in a covenant relationship with him also, so I believe these guidelines are quite apropos for us too. Do you hear me? All right? So what are these five practical guidelines that we're going to look at? And the first is that we are to fear the Lord. <gasps> fear the Lord? Yes, fear the Lord. Second, we're to walk in his ways. Third, we are to love him with our, all our heart and soul. Fourth, we're to serve the Lord. And fifth, we are to observe the Lord's commands. So let's begin with number one, to fear the Lord. So what does this mean, to fear the Lord? All right, if uh, Pastor Bill Hayes was here, you'd get a three-day uh, presentation on the fear of the Lord. We're not going to do that this morning. And I believe the answer to this, to this question, why should we fear the Lord, is to come to a proper understanding of who God is. And we've lost that in the church, I believe. A proper understanding of who God is. And understanding who man is as we stand in relationship to this holy God. All right? Let's begin to break this down. First and foremost, we must begin with the biblical understanding of who this true and living God is. Not man's perception, not our ideologies, not our religious views, but what the infallible, authoritative word of God says about the Lord God. What the scriptures say, not the Bahaga, but the inspired word of God that proves itself true through its prophetic message. 
How many prophecies? Over 200 prophecies, close to 300 prophecies about the first coming of Jesus Christ. Fulfilled perfectly. Perfectly. And he can done a lot of things, but he couldn't have resurrected from the dead, but it was prophesied that he would, and as the Son of God, he did. We have the inspired Word of God to tell us who God is. Amen? And right in the beginning, it says in the very first verse of his book, in the beginning God created the heavens of the earth, and we could stop right there. We have to understand that he is the creator. He created all that is seen and unseen, the heavens and the earth. Therefore, he has the right, and he alone, to say what happens in his creation. Because he is sovereign over it, for he created it. Nothing would exist without him. So he has the right and the privilege to designate the ways that things should operate within his creation. And if you look, now we live in where the creation has been subject to corruption, but look how perfect this earth works. Look how perfect, and that's just a, a microcosm. Study your uh, body. Do an anatomical and physiological study of your body. It works perfectly. We should die every day because of the diseases that are out there, but our immune systems and then keep us alive. God is awesome. All right? And keeps our bodies and the creation intact. It's his rules and regulations that also want to guide us morally and socially. Amen? So if you will, uh, I'll read it to you. It's, uh, this is from, to get some insight, Daniel writes about King Nebuchadnezzar after he uh, walks out on this palace and he thinks he's the bomb, right? He says, hey, look at this great kingdom which I've developed. And all of a sudden, boom, the Lord strikes him with insanity. He's away from his kingdom for seven years. Look what he writes when he comes out of his insanity. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes from heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. That means from everlasting to everlasting. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of earth are regarded as nothing. Now, not that we are nothing, but in comparison to a holy God, we're as nothing. Amen? He does as he pleases with the powers of heavens and the peoples of earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? He is the sovereign God. And he sets the things in place for the peoples of the earth. His guidelines, his rules, his regulations, etc. Now that could be very scary if we don't look at the other attributes of who God is. Because we don't want to think that this holy tyrant is ruling over the heavens and earth. He is not a tyrant. He is holy though. Perfectly, morally pure. He is holy. And we can't even comprehend that in our finite and sinful minds. He's void of anything evil or corrupt. Therefore, he rules over his creation through his holiness. Do you hear me? He is perfectly righteous, perfectly just, not like men whose men fluctuate. Lord Acton said this, power corrupts absolute, power corrupts absolutely. Even pastors must be very careful that they don't exalt themselves above anything else or presbyters or anyone else. We are just men, saved by grace. Amen? Amen? Have to be careful when you're put in a position of authority. Listen to Psalm 99, 1 and 2. It says, The Lord reigns. Let the nations tremble. He sits enthroned between the cherubim. Let the earth shake. Great is the Lord in Zion. He is exalted over all the nations. Let them praise your great and awesome name, for He is holy. He is separate from all that is created. He is perfectly morally pure, righteous, and just. And let's go on and understand. He is omniscient. That means he knows 
everything. Everything. Okay? Nothing takes him by surprise. Do you think man's sin took him by surprise? Do you think anything in your life takes him by surprise? I said this once before. As people, we look at a parade through a peephole and only see one part. He's on top of the building. He sees the whole parade. He sees the left turns, the right turns. He knows exactly what's going to happen. He knows everything perfectly. He's also omnipresent. That means he's all present. He's always with us. He sees all and he's everywhere. Read Psalm... um, Excuse me. Psalm 139, 7 to 12. If I go to the heavens, you're there. If I go to the depths of the sea, where can I run from your presence? The answer is nowhere because he's all present. Amen? And he's omnipotent. He's all powerful. He can do all things. What we prayed for this morning, Deanna, he's all powerful. He's present with your nephew and he can do all things. He can heal. He can change directions. He can open a sea. He can create the heavens and the earth. Who can stay his hand? And he's immutable. Thank you, Lord, that you are immutable. And that means he does not change. What he says is and will be. His, our salvation. Imagine if the rules changed. Oh, it's not by grace today. Today it's by works. No. This is what he says. This is what will be. This is what he calls us to do. And this is what he wants from us. Amen? And church, listen. There's also one other characteristic that permeates his being. He's perfect love. And that's why with his perfect holiness and his perfect love, he's not a tyrant. He's the holy God who cares, who will pour out his grace and mercy on his creation and care for us. Do you understand? So this is the true God, holy, all-powerful, sovereign creator who knows all, sees all, who is perfectly loving and just in all his ways. So in order to start to understand the fear of the Lord, we must see God through the perspectives of his word. And when we do, we should fall to our knees in reverence to understand that we are sinners. And this is a holy God who made the way for reconciliation. We should fall in reverence before him just for who he is. And listen, we also, as a sinful race, even though saved by grace, should have a healthy fear of the living God. Do you hear me? Do you hear me? And church, we understand this. And let me go back to Genesis, the book of beginnings. When man is created, man was created with a special relationship with the Lord. He was to co-labor with him and rule over the earth. But as we go on in Scripture... We see that God gives man one command. It's found in Genesis 2, 16 and 17. Listen to this. It said, The Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. And as we go into Genesis 3, known as the fall of man, what do Adam and Eve do? They go against the one command, the one principle that God had for them, and the results were disastrous. We said they will certainly die. They absolutely did. They died spiritually, and their bodies were now subject to decay. And they were separated from a holy God. Read the scriptures. He says, get out of my garden. Get out of this perfect place that I prepared for you. And I'm putting a cherubim there with a fiery sword that you cannot enter back in. So what happens is we see this relationship between the holy God now and the sinful man separated. And listen, because we are all in Adam's race, read Romans 5. And because we all have a sin nature, we will sin and we will be separated from this holy God. And the consequences will fall on us also. Don't, hey, listen, I'm going to be 62. Body's breaking down. All right? Front of the conveyor belt. 
So we're breaking down. And I was spiritually dead until, until faith in Christ when I was made spiritually alive with the hope that I will get a resurrected body and live in God's eternal kingdom forever. So God provided the way. Amen? But listen, if we don't, if we were left in our fallen state, the only thing we had to look forward to was God's perfect word that told us it will be judgment into the lake of fire. And let me tell you, if mankind doesn't tremble in fear at the thought of being cast into the lake of fire, there's something wrong. And that's why they suppress the truth, because they don't want to say, oh my goodness, I'm a sinner, and this is going to be my eternal fate. If that should make, when someone hears the gospel and the Holy Spirit convicts, we should fall and say, thank you, Lord, that you provided a way to keep me from that. I don't think there's any greater fear that man can face than to know you would be eternally separated from God. Oh, it makes me tremble. What a pitiful state we find man in. And listen carefully. Ready, Mike? But God. But God. The perfect, holy, righteous, merciful God full of grace sent His Son in the world to die for us, to reconcile that relationship so we would not have to suffer that eternal fate. Praise the Lord. So fellowship could be restored, what? Immediately. When you place your face in Jesus Christ, that fellowship's restored immediately, and not only immediately, but through eternity, that we will always be with Him. Amen? Is He perfectly holy? Yes. Perfectly just? Yes. But He's also perfectly loving and merciful, and has poured out His grace on sinners such as us so that we could have eternal life. That is why I have down here, the rejection of the gospel is so repulsive to God. So repulsive that we would reject the perfect plan of God that cost him his son's life, that Jesus went to the cross, is repulsive to a living God. And it's also repulsive that his creation, those made in his image, would reject the way to be restored to him. It saddens his heart. Think about it. That I made the way for you, the one made in my image, to come and be restored in fellowship with me, but you reject it. How sad. Amen? Now you may be saying, Pastor, we're believers by faith. Are we still to have a fear of the Lord? Yes. Because when Moses wrote Deuteronomy under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He was writing to his covenant and to the Israelites. And he's talking to us, church, that we also should have a healthy fear of the Lord. And the second reason being is that, listen, God will discipline his children. God will discipline his children. Because when we start to stray from his word and we start to go off on our own and become self-willed and give into all desires and likes, he's going to be like any good parent. Our Heavenly Father, get back in line. And it's for our good. He disciplines us for our good, so why? I walked in the world. I made choices. I made other things a priority, and boy, did I mess up my life. Some bad things out there. But thank God through His forgiveness. And listen, don't think it can happen again if we start getting away from God's will and start doing things in our own way, in our own will, in our own strength. He keeps us from our own poor choices and actions. And listen, listen to Hebrews 12. If you want to turn to Hebrews 12, 5 to 8. It says, Have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you? 
As a father addresses his son, it says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord ready disciplines the one he what? He loves. And he chastens everyone he accepts as his son, as his daughter. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as children. For what child is not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons at all. When we start to stray, our Heavenly Father is so concerned about us that He will discipline us to get back on track. Now let me get back to why then should we have a healthy fear of the Lord? I don't want God to discipline me because He knows the best way to get me back in line. You know, He can do those things that are going to get my attention. So we want to walk in um, obedience not to incur the Lord's discipline. We should have a healthy fear of being disciplined by a parent. When you're a little guy or a little gal, the last thing I wanted to hear is, when your father gets home. Oh, maron. It was, I knew it. The strap was coming off. Oof. So, yeah, not today. You'd go to jail. But back in the day, so listen, I don't want to be disciplined by my heavenly father because nobody can discipline him. All right? He's the end-all, be-all. All right, so let's look at another reason that we should have a healthy fear of the Lord. And listen, we're Christ ambassadors. Do you hear me? We represent him. Read 2 Corinthians 5.20. And if we begin to profane his holy name by our lifestyle choices or by our disobedience, he will chastise us to protect his holy name. We represent him. Don't go out there and call yourself a Christian if you don't want to be one and live like one. Because you mock the name by whom we call ourselves. And he ain't going to put up with it. He will be jealous for his namesake. You hear me? Listen, if we stumble our hypocrisy, I believe the Lord is going to discipline us. He's not pleased with that scenario. Do you hear me? Church Solomon gave us some of the greatest insight in the book of Proverbs. He said the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And why is that? So that we understand who he is and we have a good knowledge of walking in his ways because he can discipline us and he will protect his namesake. We see it throughout scriptures. All righty? Family, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom because we come to gain a biblical understanding of who God is man's lost condition, our need for salvation, and our desire to walk under his fatherhood. Amen? Praise God. All right. So with that said, let's go on to purposeful guideline number two in that we are called to walk in his ways. Called to walk in his ways. So how can we learn to walk in his ways? What does that mean, Pastor? Well, we must absolutely read the scriptures to understand how to walk in his ways. But I'm going to ask you this morning to really, to understand this, as we focus on the Gospels. Because Jesus Christ is the radiance and exact representation of our Heavenly Father. So if we want to walk in his ways, look at the life of Christ and emulate him and walk like him and we will walk in the ways that God has set for us. If you want to know how to daily live in the ways of the Heavenly Father, just look to the Son. And he's given us the examples of who he is and his walk in this, on this side of eternity in the Gospels. We need to examine the life of Christ, how he reacted, how he acted, how he responded, and then we must purpose to do likewise. Look at the life of Christ. It makes sense. And he, listen, Jesus, as I explained to you one time, he relied on the Holy Spirit throughout his earthly ministry. And it's that same spirit that lives in each and every born-again believer. So we are given the capability to walk like Christ. 
we have to purpose and choose the desire to do so. Amen? So read and look at Jesus. And what I'd like to do is just give you a couple of examples to give us a mind's view of how our Lord is like. The first one is found in John chapter 8. Remember the story? Jesus is in the temple courts, and they wanted to catch Jesus so they could condemn him. So they bring a woman that's caught in adultery. And as I was reading a book, where's the guy? He was supposed to get stoned too, all right? But as they bring her, they set up quite a quandary for our Lord because they say to him, according to the law of Moses, she should be condemned and stoned. Now, if the Lord says no, he breaks the law of Moses. If he says yes, he doesn't have the right to do that. He breaks Roman law and he's in trouble. So he's set up. So what does he do? In the wisdom of God, he writes something in the sand. I hope we find out in eternity what he wrote. And one by one, the elders drop their stones and walk away. But what I really want to get to is the interaction with the woman. He goes over in the compassion of Christ. And he says, is there anyone here to condemn you? He shows her mercy. He shows the grace of God. And she says, no, there's no one here to condemn me. He says, then neither do I condemn you. But go and sin no more. Perfect Love, perfect grace, and perfect justice. Go and sin no more. He gives us a great example. And if we take it into uh, John chapter 4, and we look at this, uh, the woman at the well, he does the same thing with her. He goes there. Now, she's a Samaritan woman, right? She's a half-breed, if you will. Jews hate Samaritans. Samaritans hate Jews. And he asks her for a drink of water, and she gives him a, a wisecrack remark. Now, he could have blew her off right there. But he doesn't. He shows compassion. He shows mercy. Why? Because she's lost. She's a lost soul in need of the love of Christ. And he ministers to her. And not only does she come to believe in him, but her whole town through her testimony. If he would have blew her off, what would have happened to those people? What would have happened to her? But he showed the grace and the compassion of Christ. And he called out her sin. Oh, yeah, you don't, that's not your husband. You've already had five husbands. So he called out her sin, convicted. She comes on Jews, if you will, and they believe because of how he responded to her. So I have to ask you, how do we respond to those we find out there in the world, to the lost and sinful? Do we respond with the grace and mercy of Christ, the compassion of Christ, or do we sit there in condemnation and judgment? Because how we respond, do we despise sin? Absolutely, because it cost the Lord his life. But how are sinners going to come to know our Savior if we shun, if we have attitudes, if we call names? We have to be Christ to them so that they can find the same salvation hope that we have. Amen? Praise God. Just go through the Gospels and look at the life of Christ, his interactions with others, his compassion, his mercy, his willingness to feed them, he was exhausted at times, yet he pushed on in ministry. Do we have that same desire to act like Jesus? Listen to Colossians 3.12, and it gives us a great outline, this in, in Galatians, because Jesus Christ perfectly exemplified the fruits of the Spirit, the same things that he wants in us. Listen to what it tells us to be. As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with what? Compassion, with kindness, humility, gentleness and patience and in Galatians 5 it says this but the fruit of the spirit is love and we know that in this church agape a sacrificial love the same kind of love that Christ showed joy peace forbearance kindness 
goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Family, Jesus portrayed these fruits perfectly. And we're his disciples. We're to emulate him. Let those fruits be evident in our lives. And even the tests and trials and situations we come up against are going to be for us to try to portray these fruits. Sitting in traffic, I learned how to be patient. And I'm still working on it. So what they did, they gave me Joy and Judy to drive with me up to Pennsylvania. And I had to behave myself. I think I passed the test. Praise God. All right? But we should look at Christ and then walk in his ways. He's the one we're to emulate. Amen? All right, so let's go on. Purposeful guideline number three, and that's to love him. To love him. Very simple. And again, I want to look at a couple of scriptures and understand what that means. And then look at a couple of scriptures, see how we practically do that. All right? So bear with me. Look at what Mark 12.30 says. Love the Lord your God, ready, with all your heart, that's all your emotion, all your soul, your inner being, with all your mind, and all your strength. I think that covers the basis for us as human beings, does it not? It covers all the areas. Jesus is our bridegroom. He's our bridegroom, and we are the bride of Christ. And we are to love him exactly how we designed the marriage relationship to be, that same kind of love that you see between a husband and wife that same kind of intimacy that you see between a husband and wife. He wants that kind of relationship with his church. Amen? All right, look what it says here. In, uh, this is how a question that we really have to ask ourselves. Is Jesus our first love? If my wife asked me on this side of eternity, am I, is she my first love? I'd answer yes, and I hope she would answer the same way. But in our spiritual mind, is Jesus Christ our first love? She's giving me a look. <laughs> Listen to what Luke 14, 26 to 27 says. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Now, please understand, he's not telling us to hate people He's saying that the relationship we have with him is so beyond that it would make these other relationships look like hatred. Do you hear me? That our love for him comes first in such a way that it's beyond anything we can humanly express or get involved in. But let me make something clear here. When we say we love the Lord and we want to make him first, and it, God just put this on my heart, just running around in ministry and doing things, making this relationship works-oriented is not what the Lord is looking for. Do you hear me? He's looking for an intimate, personal relationship. And then the good works and doing things for His name will come out of it. But He wants us to be with Him in His Word, be with Him in prayer, be with Him in the church. Do you know this is a worship service, even the Word of God as unto the Lord? And I don't get it how people can poo-poo off Sundays that they don't come. This is a time to come together and worship the one we're in love with corporately. Because guess what? We're going to be doing that for eternity. So if you don't like it now, you're going to be bored during uh, heaven. Amen? So he wants us to come together and worship him. What I'm saying is that nothing and no one should take the place of our first relationship with our first love who is Jesus Christ. Even if you're, listen, you don't renege your responsibilities if you're not equally yoked. You be that husband, you be that wife that God wants you to be. But our first responsibility is to build that relationship with him as our first love, as our bridegroom. Amen? Praise God. 
And then it says, listen, I have down here, the greatest test will come when we have to challenge, for no better choice of words, the biggest relationship that gets in our way. You know who that is? Ourselves. Ourselves. When we have to relinquish our will and our desires to the will of God and desires of the Lord. So that's a big battle. That's why he says, take up your cross daily and follow me. We have to crucify the self, our will, our desires, our choices, and bring them under, as we'll see, the lordship of Jesus Christ. Is he our first love? Will we bring that unto him? And it's, it tells us he's our bridegroom. If you will, turn with me. I want to do a little comparison here. Ephesians 5. Sorry. Ephesians 5. It says, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Guys really love that one. For the husband is head of the wife as the Christ is head of the church, and the guy's going, yeah, his body of which he is our Savior. Now the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. But look, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present it to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. So let's just clear the air here. Guys, we got the harder job. We have to love our wives like Christ loved the church. And we know what he went through for his bride. So we need to set the example in our homes. And then our wives will lovingly come under us because they know we have the, want the best for us. So, but look, let's go on from there. It says 32. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. What the Lord is saying that the relationship that I've established between husband and wife is the same as me as the bridegroom and you, the church. Come under my authority, but look what I have done for you out of my love for you. I went to the cross of Calvary and died for you so that you could be set free. I've cleansed you by my blood so that you could spend eternity in my home, in my kingdom forever. But it's that marital type of relationship that we have Christian marriage. It's the same kind of love that God wants between us and him. And we have to nurture that. A good marriage doesn't just happen. It needs to be nurtured. The communication, the love, the tenderness, the sacrifices we make one for another. Man, I did not want to go grocery shopping 5.30 yesterday. I was tired, but I didn't want my bride to go by herself. So I went along, pushing the cart, unloading the packages, because why? I love her and I will sacrifice for her. And that was a little one. That's a little one. But those are the things that, and we see that we do because we love our wife. How much more? Should we sacrifice for our bridegroom? Amen? Amen? Praise the Lord. All right. And therefore, listen carefully. We need to avoid what is coined spiritual adultery. Do you hear me? Now, I'm going to tweak your emotions a little bit. How do we feel about adultery? How does a husband feel if his wife cheats on him or a husband cheats on his wife? It hurts. There's a lot of questions. There's vindictiveness. There's anger. All those things that run through us. How much more do you think our bridegroom is, his heart is grieved if we commit spiritual adultery? So how do you think he feels? Just read the scriptures, Jeremiah 3, about unfaithful Israel, God's covenant people, or Ezekiel 23, when it talks about Ohola and Oholabah, which are uh, the southern king of Hosea. It's really a, a comment about God and his covenant people, how we go astray, but yet he get, buys us back off the slave block. They chased after idols, chased after worldly pleasures, violated the word of God, and hence committed spiritual adultery against the Lord. So let me ask you and I, 
What about us when we put other things, other people, worldly pleasures before the Lord? It's the same thing. When we don't make him our first love in every area of our life, our priorities, our choices, our lifestyles, we're committing spiritual adultery. When we chase after the things of the world. Do you hear me? Wow, you're quiet this morning. Family, we must look at ourselves. Do we value our relationship with Christ? Do we love him above everything? Are we repulsed when we walk in sin and commit spiritual adultery? And the only person who can answer that question is the person in the mirror. Is the person in the mirror. Amen? Look at what it says in Matthew 13, 44 to 46, uh, 46. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy he sold all that he had and bought the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he everything else. They got rid of everything else so that they could have that treasure. They could have that pearl. And what about us? Are we willing to give it all up for the greatest treasure that man could ever find? A relationship with Jesus Christ. What is so great to hinder our relationship with him? What is so great or tweak us so much that we would commit spiritual adultery against our bridegroom? Nothing. Nothing. How much he loves us and what we have to look forward to. Think about it. You know, it's a tough teaching this morning, but boy, in these parables we see the kingdom of heaven like the, just a relationship with the Lord. So let me ask you this morning, is your, is my relationship with the Lord preeminent over all the other ones in your life? Is it? Especially the one that looks in the mirror? Does your love for Christ come before the desires of what the world has to offer? Does your love for the Lord supersede our own will? And is he truly the first Love over all the kingdoms of our hearts. Very simply, each one of us to be honest and look in the mirror and say, is Jesus Christ my first love? And that's a pretty tough question because it might be pretty convicting when we look at that. All right, let's go on to guideline number four, and that's to serve him. And let me begin by saying this, that God has created each one of us uniquely. We are each unique in how he created us, the families we were born in, birth order, all these things, the environment we grew up in, they all have a play on our personalities, our genetics do. And then God takes all that and he chooses to use it for his glory and honor. In our unique design, the Lord has bestowed on us different gifts, talents, and abilities that he's created each one of us for to use if we're willing to use them for his glory and honor, right? For the edification of others and listen, to be fulfilled. Joel's got it all wrong. Our best life now is not in prosperity. Our best life now is to fulfill what God has for us because that's where you're going to find your greatest joy in what God has for us. When you fulfill what God has created you for, you will be joyful because you're doing God's will with the gifts and talents he's given you. You can't be somebody else. And the things out there aren't going to make you joyful because they wane away. And the scariest thing is, as soon as you get something two months later, you want something else. I saw it. I love my truck. It's 12 years old. It's still in good shape. But every time an F-150 goes by, my eyes go, ooh, look at that. Or a Ram 1500. Ugh, ugh. Nice looking trucks. But God's blessed me. And we do the same thing. We're just never content. But we will be content in life if we do what God's called us to do with our gifts and talents. Amen? 
I told you this. I'm not going to go into the whole story again. I wanted to be in law enforcement. It didn't work out. God created me to be a teacher. And I did it for 30 years, and I was blessed. And next week, I'm going to be really blessed when I see one of those kids step into this pulpit. Amen? Praise God. Praise the Lord. If you will, look, please turn to 1 Corinthians 12, 12. It's a long passage, but it's God's word. And the coffees are still brewing and the bagels don't get cold. All right. Just as the body, though one, has many parts, and all of its uh, many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. We were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we're all given one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one, but many. Now, if a foot should say, because I'm a hand, I do not belong to the body, it wouldn't have, for that reason, stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But if, in fact, God has placed the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be, if they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. The head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. The body together, the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it so that there should be no division in the body. No division but that its parts should be, have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ. Each one is a part of it. He goes through this whole analogy, talking about the different parts of the body, how each one God has placed in us for a specific reason. It functions. Just get a headache, a slight headache, or a migraine, and you'll see how you miss not having that thing. Right, Barry? Oof, it can knock you off your pins. Or as I said before, a stomach bug. It can take you out of your game plan. But listen, it's the same way with the body of Christ. He's given each one of us gifts and talents and abilities and organized this as part of this local expression for each one of us to use our gifts and talents to make the body work as a whole, to make him function and exist as a whole. That's why we're here, each one of us, needs to find their place within the body, the gifts and talents God has given you, and use them for his glory and honor and for the benefit of the local assembly. If you sit here and just come in and out, you're not doing what God's really asked you to do. He wants you to be part of the local expression and use your gifts and talents, and we all have them. We all have them. Chef Maribel and Chef Dominic. Whew, Maribel, those vets love that food. And Dominic, yes, they always got raves about your... Uh, Pancakes and all, and the stuffed French toast. Ooh, Madonna was good. All right, so with that said, so we're all part of the body that needs to be used by God. But listen, let me give you a second reason. Second reason here. We're ambassadors of Christ. We go into the world, into secular jobs, and we represent Him. We represent Him. We are all part of the Great Commission. And when we go out there, we want to emulate Christ and use the gifts and talents he's given us because he put us in those places so that we could witness to the lost, so that we could share the gospel. I could never be an accountant. I would screw up those books royally. People would be getting back refunds and then getting me called in by the government. If I ever did electrical work, I'd burn your house down. Seriously. So we all have our gifts and talents. 
And God wants us to go into those secular jobs to be his ambassadors. I can always use Rich Sugden. But right now, as a, a retired cop who rides motorcycles, he's with the Blue Knights. He's witnessing to these guys. They're asking him to open up in prayer. They're calling him for prayer. He's visiting them in the hospital. I couldn't do that. Stephen could do that when he retires because he's a police officer. I couldn't get that confidence that these guys have. And Rich is being used in that way. And so can you. Wade witnesses on the job. Dominic, I don't know, quiet, quiet. It's got a Bible study support, our homes and everything, but to be a witness for Jesus Christ over the years. Yeah, ah, yeah, all of them. So we're used by God. And let me ask you, it doesn't stop there. How about in our homes, guys? Men, women, husbands, wives, dads, mothers. Are we being what God calls to be in our homes? So as we raise those little cherubs, they see Christ in us. In the marketplaces, on the highways and byways, are we obeying the civil laws of society? I got one guy who goes to St. Barnabas. Every Sunday, 5 o'clock mass, he parks his big truck in an old parking zone. I want to leave Romans 13 on his, on his dashboard. <laughs> Obey the civil laws of society. No, but uh, we're called to do that. So if you can't find a spot, park a little further down, but obey the law. All right? And I one time <clears throat> got cussed out by a woman because I said, man, you know you parked illegally, and what are you trying to, you, your kids see that you can kind of compromise to do what you want. Well, then she called me a few expletives, and I went on my way. But so be it. I was just trying to, you know, what you teach your kids, that it's okay to violate the civil laws, so when they violate our home laws, they say, well, it's, I'm just compromising because I want to get what I want to get. So we want to be an example in our home. And how about our alone time and our computer time, TV time, modes of entertainment. I really, in, in my flesh, I wanted to see the last Rambo, but I couldn't. Knowing all the violence that was in that movie and killing, I just couldn't as a, a Christian man. I couldn't go and watch it. So we have to set the example, even what we watch in, in our entertainment. Amen? Guys, these are questions we have to ponder before the Lord. And with each answer, we must remember it's the Lord God we're serving. It's the Lord God we're serving in the marketplace, in the church, in our work how our boss sees us. We're supposed to work as unto the Lord. How our co-workers see us. It could be the difference between drawing an uh, unbeliever to Christ or driving them away from our hypocrisy. And you know what? Even within the church, how we act. Because you can cause a brother or sister to stumble. And you don't want to do that. You want to be a godly example, especially when the new and younger Christians come in. You want to be a good example to them so they don't stumble, right? All right, and the last one, last and final, woohoo, we're getting there. Purposeful guideline is to observe the Lord's commands and decrees. And let's begin. This word observe, you know where it comes from? The ancient mariners would observe the stars in order to guide them and keep them on the right path. Hmm, I wonder where that path is going. Well, God has given us the word of God also to guide us and keep us on the right path. So when we follow his decrees and principles, it will keep us on that narrow road that he wants to keep us on and keep us from straying to the left or to the right. Amen? So we want to observe. We don't want to get off course and lose our way. In Psalm 119, 105, it says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Go back to the day that this was written. They walked on dark paths and they would either take a lantern or a torch and it would light their way so they could see where they were going and not get off the path and keep them from stumbling. 
And so again, the word of God is like that to us. It keeps us on the right path and it keeps us from stumbling. That's why we want to observe his principles, decrees, and commands. He's not a tyrant that wants to subjugate us under these laws. He created them for our good so that we won't get off the path, we won't make stupid choices, we won't have sinful consequences, and we draw closer to him and become more like him. He wants to keep us on the right path for our good. He's holy. He's got it. We're on our way. Amen? His word is perfect and trustworthy. Go through the scriptures. That's what it tells us, especially in the Psalms. And given to us for our good and, prote- and protection from destructive choices, behaviors, and, and lifestyle. Again, they're not a list to subjugate us. And let me give you another reason why we want to do it. It demonstrates our love for him. He said it. Listen to uh, John fourteen fifteen. If you love me, keep my commands. Do you love Jesus? Then keep his commands. First John 5, 2 and 3. By this we know that, that we love the children of God when we love God and, and obey his commandments. But this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And if commandments aren't burdensome, he is the one who loves me. So, another challenge. If you say you love the Lord God, are you willing to un- go under his decrees and principles commands? If you love him, you're going to keep his commands. And therefore, are good. They're going to keep you from some pretty horrible choices. Amen? And we so, wh- Again, what was that last week, Teresa? We weren't here. Teresa got a, a call from a friend. A young 20, 25, was he? Opioid, overdose, and he died. And he died. Choices. Keeps us from that. Youngsters, Steve, Steve, little Stephen back there. Those things that God gives us in his word, we're older now. But as a young kid facing what's out there in the world today, he's got those commands for your good, not for your detriment. He wants to keep you from doing something stupid. Because can you imagine the heartache of your mom and dad? I can't even imagine that. We came that close to losing Thomas, and I remember the heartache. I can't imagine that as something stupid like opioid or drunk driving. Can't imagine. So here's a challenge. If we love him, keep his commands. Because, listen, he's not only our Savior. Go into a concordance. He's the Lord. He's the Lord. Before he came as Jesus the man, he's the Lord. And we come under his lordship. Study global, the Lord's over the manor. What they said went. That was it. He is our Lord, okay? Our Savior and our Lord. Praise God. So we want to obey what he says. Family, we covered a lot of ground this morning, but I have a challenge for you this, for the next week. What I'd like you to do or ask you to do is find a quiet time. Look at this passage in Deuteronomy 10, 12 to 13. Meditate on it. Look at those five practical guidelines and say, honest with yourself, sit in front of a mirror. How am I in these five areas? How am I doing? Holy Spirit, please convict me and help me to grow and be more like Christ. Help me to have a healthy fear of you, O God. Help me to love you and serve you, O God. Help me to emulate and walk in your ways, Lord Jesus. And help me to keep your principles and commands. And where am I erring in these areas? And Holy Spirit, because I love you, Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, help me to become more like Christ. Five practical guidelines. Again, I can't give you the particulars where God's going to lead you in your life, but he gives us five very general guidelines of what he desires of us. Hear, O Israel, this is what I desire of you. Hear, O church, this is what I desire of you. To fear the Lord, walk in his ways, love him, serve him, keep his commands and principles. Amen?
Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word.